My parents are breaking up, and there's nothing I can do about it. Jordash Basics. Hey, man, it happens. Yeah, but it's not supposed to happen. So they must be real unhappy, right? Yeah, they never talk, except when they yell. And even then, they don't look at each other. So maybe they should split. Are you crazy? I don't want them to be alone. <laughs> you really think they're going to be alone? No, they'll always have me. Anthony? Oh, congratulations on your exam results. Grandma, I failed. You failed? What do you mean you failed? I mean I failed. Maths, English, physics, geography, German, woodwork, art. I failed. You didn't pass anything? Pottery. Pottery? Very useful. Anthony, people will always need plates. Anything else? And sociology. An ology? It gets an ology and it says it's failed. You get an ology, you're a scientist. Whether it's well done or hard luck, a phone call says a lot. The most brilliant boys, the teachers who are wrong, you know, they can't mark. A lot of them can't see. British Telecom. It's you we answer to. Welcome, listeners of Illusion, to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode nightmare retrospective podcast. I'm Martin Harder, and I wouldn't like it if someone got my name wrong. And I'm Martin O'Doney, and I don't like that he got his name the same. (laughs) Today we're looking at Series 2, Episode 9, which was first broadcast on Halloween 1988. Enya's Orinoco flow was somehow still topping the charts, and the fish called Wanda was still riding high at the top of the box office. I don't know if this applies to you, it might have been a bit early for you, but um, what I most remember about A Fish Called Wanda when it was at the cinema was constantly seeing the same clip over and over again of John Cleese performing a striptease in someone else's bedroom (laughs) over and over (laughs) on television reviews of the film, especially on TVAM. They were always showing this clip on TVAM every couple of days. That's what you want to see with your cornflakes, isn't it? Yeah, it really scarred you for life, seeing all that body hair of John Cleese. I remember seeing clips of it on the Wide Awake Club, because uh, Wide Awake Club seemed to have this thing of showing clips from films and talking about films that were way too adult for its target audience. It's one of the things about children's TV back in the 1980s. They didn't give a toss about what was suitable for the age. I love The first that. time I ever heard about The Terminator was on Wide Awake Club. There was um, a follow-up programme, not from TVAM, but um, in, in the mid-80s. I think it was called TX or something. Um, Tony Slattery was, a, was one of the presenters of it. And they also did the same thing. They, they basically just, just carried on what the Wide Awake Club had been doing for, um, <laughs> for the previous couple of hours. Mm. Um, and doing all sorts of things that you just think, you shouldn't do that on kids' TV, guys. You really shouldn't. I mean, this is Tony Slattery. What else do you expect? Mm. But he had a couple of female presenters on there with him, so it was basically the same format as the Wide Awake Club, but being done by a different production company. But they were doing the same things, and they would often um, preview films that you're thinking, kid, what are you doing? The kids can't go and watch that. That's a 15 <laughs> What are you thinking? 
Uh, oh, I miss those days. It was so much more daring. There was also the habit as well, wasn't there, of like making kids' cartoons out of R-rated movies. There was a, a Robocop cartoon, I believe, Beetlejuice, Police Academy. There was an Aliens cartoon in the works, which never came out, although the action figures did. You could easily argue even the real Ghostbusters, um, given the amount of um, heavy smoking and bad language there is in the Ghostbusters film. You could very easily argue that that shouldn't really have a cartoon series made either, but it, even there, it was actually very successful real ghostbusters i have particular fond memories of a semi-obscure cartoon called james bond jr i vaguely remember that i didn't remember the bit of the title going james bond jr really imaginative song there guys well done i actually know all the lyrics off by heart that's the sad thing james bond jr I didn't really take to it. I watched a couple, the first couple of episodes, I think it was, and then I just, I just, nah, not for me. And now time turns, the recording light burns, time out is gone, the podcast is on. Welcome, watchers of Illusion. Here's a dungeon dose of genuine adventuring. Treyguard at your service. Heroics supplied by special order. Of course, they're really supplied by youngsters from your world, your time. A quest is now in progress. So here's a progress report. Young Neil and chums from Newark Knots have proved that there are no dungeon clots by dodging snakes and fooling crones and finding keys amongst the bones. They even played a deadly game, like chess, but hardly just the same. And though a spider made them spurt, they brought old Merlin down to earth. The sword they seek, the hilt they own, but now time's flown, the game is on. Yeah, but there are issues with this dungeon deity. <laughs> no, they're just... Uh, so what we got, we've got knots, clots, crones, bones, game, same, spurt. Uh, you, you've got own and on um, as, as rhymes. I've actually been own is supposed to rhyme with flown. Yeah, but um, then that but doesn't it, fit the rhyming scheme of the rest of the ditty. It doesn't, but I think that is what it's meant, it's meant to be, though. It's, it, just, it just means that they're breaking other rules. I think it, this run does actually start out quite well, but um, it really seems to lose heart just as it's entering the last furlong. And then you've got this really, really ridiculous, a spider made them spurt? <laughs> that just reminds me of my um, D&D campaign I'm part of. I have a, a dragonborn paladin called David Ramsbottom, whose philosophy is that he's a lover, not a fighter. And our very first battle was against a giant spider. I have a horrible feeling I know where this is going, and I really <laughs> don't know whether it's suitable for a podcast about a kid's TV show. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> let's, just, let's just say I rolled a nat 20. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Ended up with a spider familiar. <laughs> Ugh. 
Well, we found the level really quickly this week, ladies and gentlemen. It was a promising start um, to the uh, Dungeon Ditty, but as I say, it, it rather started resorting to, oh, anything will do. We rejoin Neil and his team in the Hall of Folly, where Merlin is posing them a riddle. The final riddle that Merlin is asking them is, what monster did Theseus encounter in the labyrinth? Now, we actually joked about this on the last episode. I didn't realise you were joking. I I hadn't actually refreshed my memory on this episode before we recorded the last one. But yeah, we joked about this last episode. I didn't actually realise they were actually going to give the answer the Goblin King. (laughs) I I thought you did realise it. It's not actually that terrible an answer, um, to be perfectly honest. Um, The movie Labyrinth was only a couple of years old at this point. Uh, David Bowie, what an actor. (laughs) Okay, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that one. He definitely had a rather large presence on the screen. Yes, but what about his acting? (laughs) There was no character in Labyrinth called Theseus that I remember. Um, and I, I was under the impression everyone has taught the story of Theseus and the Minotaur in school before they're a teenager. The Minotaur is the obvious answer. Goblin King, not a terrible suggestion. Not, not, not as bad, not, not as laughable as you might initially think. But despite their incorrect answer, Merlin tells them they have answered well and more knowledge may be theirs. When you meet your own monster, take the first left to escape. Merlin bids Neil good luck, and with a clap of thunder and a flash of lightning, disappears. Armed with the new knowledge, the team guide Neil out using the key he is holding to unlock the door. Just turn to your right. Turn a little bit to your right and walk forward. Where am I? Neil, you're in a, like a mine. Pardon? You're in like a mine. Now then, team, places to go and things to do, but first, perhaps, something to investigate? Hmm? So Neil stands near the entrance to a mine shaft. The mine shaft will be the entrance to level three in the third season, but not yet. In front of him, we've got a plunger, a detonator, and the team, under a lot of uh, prompting by Treyguard, guide him towards it. Is it a bad reflection on this team, by the way, that when the advisors tell Neil that he's in a mine, I half expect him to reply, I'm in a yours? <laughs> it just seems like the sort of thing they would say. Mm. He's on the verge of examining the plunger when... Oi! Oh. You! Oh Who said you could come in here? <laughs> Stop right there! You notice Bumptious would have had to be crouching down really, really quite tightly and firmly to remain hidden behind the minecart there, so uh, I'm wondering what exactly he was doing down there. The ever-officious Bumptious, possibly the world's tallest dwarf, demands to know Neil's name and his guild number. Uh, Neil has a little trouble providing the first part of the information, but he doesn't have a guild number. Bumptious immediately opens trial proceedings. Say what you will about him, but you can't deny he's efficient. I can. He's functioning as judge, prosecutor and defence counsel all at the same time, because he advises Neil out of the plea. I don't think it's ever efficient to take three mutually exclusive roles, so no. I don't agree that he's efficient. You've got to um, make sure you understand there's a difference between bureaucracy and efficiency. Ah, that's true. Oh, that's worse than I thought! Worse than I thought! Right, by the book, by the book! What this effectively equates to, though, is just another question and answer session. Mm, And that's not good, because we just had one in the previous chamber, and um, we could have done without another riddle contest straight away. I get the impression that this doesn't actually mean anything, though. Uh, Like, um, if they'd got all the answers wrong, I don't think it would have made any difference whatsoever. Well, it didn't anyway, because of the way they handled things in a couple of chambers' time. But uh, (laughs) it seems to be just a riddle contest where as long as you get one right, you can carry on. Right. 
Trial commence. Child commence. First question. What do dwarves like best? And they answer... Well, they answer diamonds. I rather like, by the way, while they're discussing this, the facetious way that one of the advisors suggests height. Jewels. No, height. What's it in dwarves? <laughs> <laughs> this team are not brilliant at dungeoneering, as we kept on saying, but they are a good laugh. The actual answer is gold. I'm not sure that the source is for this answer. It, it may be the Lord of the Rings, because something to do with Arda in the Lord of the Rings. My understanding was it established that dwarves use gold. I don't know whether it means it's their favourite thing, though. I should say in defence of the team, given the seven dwarves mined for diamonds in the Snow White film, is that really a bad answer? Yeah, that's what they're referring to, weren't they? But... He says, no. When Bumptious says, no, that's it. it. No is where it is. Second riddle. There is no saving the team for this one. Do female dwarves have beards? The answer, yes. No! They're female, aren't they? I think it's one of those things where the obvious answer was no, so they maybe assumed that the obvious answer wasn't the correct one. They thought it was a bluff. Yeah, they did get this last one right, but there would be absolutely no excuse for getting this one wrong. It had been spelled out to them in the in the question. <laughs> dwarves don't trust elves because elves aren't dwarves. Why don't dwarves trust humans? I don't think we should. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too obvious. Let's yeah, it's, yeah. So, <clears throat> they did get it right, and Bumptious brings the trial to a close, finding Neil guilty of being a human. Notice the way that one of the advisors goes, "Oh no!" in response to the revelation. Not guilty of being a completely stupid human, though. I would agree to that. Actually, Neil is not a stupid human. He's not a stupid dungeoneer. He's he's not even a particularly bad dungeoneer, but he's got an awful team. <laughs> there is a certain drag factor um, provided by his advisors. Yeah. Something like 99% drag factor. Bumptious asks Neil to raise his right hand, so of course Neil raises his left hand, immediately contradicting what you just said, and gets him to swear never to rob a dwarf. And somehow Neil manages to mispronounce almost every word in the sentence. I swear never to rob a dwarf. Good man. Right, put your hand down. Then Bumptious tells Neil he'll need a shovel and gives him a shovel spell. I'm gifting you shovel now. Yes, a shovel spell. Shovel. Definitely shovel. 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 And then sends Neil on his way. There is so much wrong in this scene. Neil, first of all, has clearly lost the riddle contest because he got the first two questions wrong. He shouldn't get any reward. Secondly, being found guilty of being a human sounds like its own punishment. I can attest to that myself. And finally, a slight giveaway here, but I think most people already know anyway. The only way that a scene, a couple of scenes down the line, makes any sense for me, it only works if all three advisors somehow wrote the word on their notes. I just do not understand how that, that other scene managed to unfold unless every single one of them somehow managed to make exactly the same mistake. Anything else, the degree of that mistake cannot be explained otherwise. It's a shame because I quite like Bumptious as a character. Where am I? Neil, you're in a room with a monster in front of you. It's time for escape, team. You don't possess magic powerful enough to deal with this entity. Oh, I've been looking forward to using this jingle again. It's the great card of the catacombs But it disappoints time after time Trigger talks it up But it just ain't 
that was a virtual ride. Neil winds up in the great, in inverted Commodore, uh, inverted Commodore. Inverted Commodores. We're going to have the Amiga lot in here again. Neil winds up in the, in inverted commas, great corridor of the catacombs. A dim green light illuminates the corridor, and above Neil's head in the distance is a creature that looks like a close cousin of Slimer from Ghostbusters. Later on, um, during Julian's quest, we will learn that this creature is known as a toadodile, despite bearing little likeness to either a toad or a crocodile. The team will heed Merlin's warning and take the first left. One other thing about the toadodile, I, th- I think we've discussed this before, it flies. Yeah. Cross between a crocodile and a toad, and it flies. But also, it does so by staying where it is, because it doesn't fly forward towards the Dungeoneer or anything. It just sort of hovers there. Can you explain that to me? Maybe it's actually in a different temporal dimension, and it's actually jumping really high. Okay, that's as good an explanation as I've ever heard. I'm going with that. That is now conclusively proven to be the real story. Where am I? Neil, you're in a room with a well and a, s- a monk, I reckon. Intruder yeah. alert level two! Stay where you are, you strolling dunging! They got to the well to level three! They completed two levels, nearest damn it! How? Sheer blind luck, I think. Yeah, I think they were being carried a little bit. Uh, yeah, and a lot of prompting. Yes. I have to reiterate, I do like this team. I do genuinely enjoy watching them because they are quite funny. They've got their moments. It's almost one of those um, reverse principles. They play so badly that the non-player characters don't know what to do. You know, all of their clever tactics and strategies are of no use to them because they keep on doing the wrong thing at every possible moment. In an unusual turn of events, Cedric is guarding the wellway to level three. He demands a password, which the team give him. Stalatite. Nah! That's not the password for this level! <laughs> I've come up with a very, very dubious theory here. I don't, I don't think there's anything in it. If you listen carefully, they actually mispronounce the word that Mildred gave them on level one, and that they may be hedging their bets here, but it's either a stalactite, we'll say stalactite, stone formations protruded by Kevin's ceiling, or a stalag, with a G, might, stalagmite, um, the ones that protrude from the floor. Um, they say stalag tight. So maybe if they pronounced it stalactite, um, Cedric would have let them pass. I don't think so. It's just a thought. Um, Was there actually any use for the word? No, no, it was, it was a red herring. It's one of those things that it wouldn't be carried over between levels anyway due to the way the plots are scripted. I think this is fifth level two script or something. Um, and that would have been the seventh level one script. They wouldn't have crossed over. The team decide to resort to magic. A password! You see what you spellcasting. Spellcasting! S. S. Right, P. A. Prepare A. And nothing happens. The team are visibly confused. What does that remind us of? (laughs) Now, just as a reminder, I'm going to insert a soundbite here of what Bunch has said to the team. I'm gifting you... Shovel now. Team try again. Spellcasting. S P. Are you ready? A D. Give it a password. I'm gifting you shovel. And then they tried using spade as a password. Come on. Neil, say spade. Shovel. Spade. Shovel. Spade. Shovel. Spade. 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 What I really love about this scene is that Lawrence Werber's standing and you can see on his face he's thinking, what a bunch of cups. <laughs> he's back in that existence bit where he's, he's in the sort of NPC waiting for the next move mode. NPC! 
Irish tote features. <laughs> Ouch. Crack. Every cloud does have a silver lining. In this case, it's that Cedric finally gets a chance to clobber a Dungeoneer. And while we don't actually see it, thanks to some very careful placing of the life force clock, the sound effect is very satisfying. Sound of a skull cracking like an egg. I think the moral of this um, particular uh, little scene is that the old saying, let's call a spade a spade, is probably true and not true. I I don't really know what more to say. I've got to repeat, did all three advisors note down the same wrong word when they were given the spell? Or did one of them have it written down wrong and he was just feeling too meek to say no no it's not called spade it's called shovel more than any other team they seem to get collective brain freeze at the same time every single one of them makes the same mistake at the same moment it is the um inevitable follow-up to that scene in the veil of Mugdred, really isn't it i think the most realistic explanation is that only one of them was delegated to writing down spells and stuff and for whatever reason he didn't write it down at the time more than one of them takes on the role of spellcaster in, in various scenes but yeah it may be only one person took a note I suppose I didn't really think of that one thing I should say is um, I love Treyguard's little rejoinder at the end here where he says how would you like someone to get your name wrong um, as far as I know, Hugo actually um, just uh, ad-libbed that, uh, but it's one of my all-time favourite closing lines from a quest. So to sum up, this really wasn't the best team, was it? They were fun to watch. I have to say that again, but in the cold light of day, they were unbelievably lucky to get past the level one well way, let alone get a sight of the level two well way. Many better teams didn't get as far as they did. As you said earlier, they were lucky, and I think in the end, the luck finally ran out. So now it's time for you to join Neil outside the dungeon. Spellcasting. D-I-S-M-I-S. Farewell, Neil, Craig, Jason and Mark. Cedric brought you down, but magic was your downfall. Traeger dismisses the team and brings in a new band of hopefuls. We await the next challenge. Enter, stranger. Ah, name yourself, please. Our Dungeoneer is the very fresh-faced Stuart Leveland. And he is joined by advisors Neil, Craig and Neil. Stuart looks very nervous as he puts on the knapsack and helmet and definitely seems to be buying into the illusion. There are an awful lot of Neils in this week's episode, aren't there? There are. This is actually a very significant quest in one sense because it teaches viewers the perils of doing an Anakin Skywalker, joining the dark side. Um, But we'll come to that next week um yeah we'll have a guest who can discuss it with us in some detail a very special guest mm. no spoilers for that one none whatsoever now Stuart, your life force is green and your cause is just so face the dungeon door and step boldly forward where am i you're in a big room there's a sort of lever about a couple of paces in front of you. Stop! It's the combat chess stop. Where am I? You're in a room, Stuart. <clears throat> it's like a chessboard. 
risky start, team, for here you must play combat chess with the bishop of the Black Monastery. His touch is deadly, but he can only play by the rules. The doorway is your escape. Now yours is the knight's move, and you must complete it quickly. Get ready. Let your best player be your guide and make your move. The team wastes no time getting into it. Stuart begins at E1. The bishop, as usual, starts at B7. Now, before we, we go any further, I, we do have to sort of put in a slight correction. <laughs> the team wastes no time getting into it. I was going to save that until afterwards. But yes, literally as I was writing this script, we actually got a tweet from Stuart, who said, hey, true story, after spending five minutes going nowhere in this room, the producer stopped us, told us how the night moves, and let us start again. This might explain why, um, if you look closely at the advisor in the middle, he has this really awkward expression on his face right at the start when Trey God's explaining um, the setup. I was <laughs> feeling they were all just too shy to admit that they don't know how to play chess. <laughs> Let's head into master game mode, shall we? Before we actually start, actually, can I just say, am I, am I the only person who gets slightly irritated about the fact the chessboard is the wrong way around? Yeah, you are. Okay. Stuart moves to D3. The bishop moves to D5. Two squares in front of Stuart. Stuart cunningly notices the gap opening up right in front of the door behind the bishop thinks if i move into that gap will i be nearer the door yes stuart moves to b4 bishop to b7 a very cunning move as it blocks any move the team might make that would line stuart up with the exit uh, the team decides at this point to play it safe i move stuart back to d3 bishop to d5 at this point this seems much more of an intimidation tactic than anything else but this team aren't falling for the bishop's tactics stuart moves to c5 surprise surprise You're going to put that in every single episode with C5. Square C5 is used, aren't you? <laughs> anyway, the bishop moves to A8. Where it's overtaken by a Sinclair C5. Stuart to D7. The bishop goes to B7. Stuart makes good his escape through the door. You're in the cage, Stu. There's fire coming up from this monument kind of thing and cracks Tread in the Tread carefully here, Stuart, to find the right path. But hurry, this is not a place to linger. The Scarab Room is quite magnificent to look at, but at the end of the day, it's really just a simple timing puzzle. The advisors spend a small amount of time arguing about which way to go, but other than that, they deal with it pretty competently. I think this room works better when the Dungeoneer enters through one of the doors that are visible. What's happening here and what happens usually is... The Dungeoneer appears at a door at the back of the room, which is out of our view, and then he has the option of going left or right. I think it's better if he appears through one of the doors that's visible at the back of the chamber, go all the way around the entire cabin ledge, and then leave through the other one. Yeah, because then you've got double the danger. Yeah, you, you have to use both um, of the fire channels, and, but also you've got all of the chamber to go through, which means there's more manoeuvring practice there. And it also gets rid of the speculative discussions over which way to go. What's You're in a room, Stuart. There's a table in the middle. I think it's a clue room. It's the red level one clue room. On the table are an old key, a black leather gauntlet, 
a white glove and what appears to be a lemon. Stuart takes the food and Igneous manifests. First riddle is, I swallow ships, but how? For I am small. I have a mouth, but never drink at all. I have a neck, but not a head. You throw me out when I am dead. What am I? So they had actually worked this out before Traegar gave his customary clue. Igneous just sounds like an annoyed school teacher when he's asked to repeat it, doesn't he? Like, what's and what's only? You sound like an annoyed Dalek, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, the riddle is actually... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, sorry, I, I, I just thought if, if they had time out now, he'd probably just go, the bell is a signal for me, not for you. <laughs> When he says turn and face me, I, I, you get this image of a school teacher like, eyes to me, eyes to me. <laughs> <laughs> got, let's just, um, if a bottle swallows chips, then it must drink whenever it gets filled with liquid. And also, in what universe is dead a synonym for empty? People do refer to empty beer bottles as dead soldiers. Ah, that's a point. Well, that's a point. So yeah, the answer they give is bottle, and bottle is the correct answer. Name the ship. That sails without wind and crosses the oceans to the sound of a drum beat. Doesn't give them much time to answer before he. No, he doesn't, does he? Reminds me of a geography teacher I had in school once. The answer they give is strange canoe. You've got to be one hell of a good oarsman to be able to row across the oceans to the sound of a drum beat. Where are you going to get the room for the drum in the canoe is, is questionable as well. I'm not sure at that age, though, that I knew what a galley was. The answer is actually, again, is questionable again because um, a lot of galleys actually were powered by sail. They would usually propel chiefly by oars but um, many of them such as Egyptian and Cretan galleys did have a pretty powerful mainsail to use whenever the wind was was it was favourable by the same measure Viking longships were very very similar to galleys so you could say that's just as acceptable an answer they gave the answer canoe which is definitely false here is the third in the forest green an outlaw horde would rob the rich to feed the poor but tell me puny dungeoneer what garment did their leader wear? I think Dungeoneer is supposed to rhyme with wear there. Just doesn't quite manage it. Again, again, the way to tell me, puny Dungeoneer. You just say, you, again, you almost got this image of a teacher saying, you horrible boy, tell me. <laughs> Let's see if you've been paying attention. Yeah. I'll never amount to anything. <laughs> puny boy. 20 rounds of the field for you, followed by playing against the teachers in the rugby match this afternoon. The answer is a hood, because his name was Robin Hood. Once again, are we absolutely sure about that? Um, the popular image of Robin Hood doesn't have him wearing a hood. It tends to be a three-pointed hat. If he doesn't, then where does the hood come from? The hood is actually a term for a thief. Robin Hood is meant to be a fake name. He was supposed to uh, aristocrats uh, from Loxley. We can't really say Maid Mary than her merry men is a particularly reliable source. According to that, um, Robin, uh, is, who's basically a bit of a cowardly numbskull, is mistaken for this big hero. And Marion at once says, says to him, Robin? Hood. He was wearing a hood as a disguise on that particular occasion. The um, the Normans hear them saying, ah, his name's Robin Hood, is it? So that could be an example. I, I don't know. But I, 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 honestly, I have never seen any particular version of Robin Hood where he literally wears a hood. Robin Hood actually appears in the first Nightmare novella. He helps Traegard and Folly um, find the path to Nightmare Castle. Oh, he's an actual character. He's actually in there. Um, that one, he wears a cloak um, and he wears a hood over, uh, at the top of mm. the cloak. 
But he doesn't wear that as a disguise. He actually wears it to hide the fact that he's bold as a coot. So they get the answer right. Two is the score. Igneous tells them the quest is for the chalice and that she will not wear a man's glove. It's another negative clue. Joy to the negative clue. What do you think about the prompting that Traegard had to give them? They mentioned Robin Hood for themselves and then say, what would he wear? There might be just further proof that he was never really depicted as wearing a hood. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Oh, well, never mind. So with this negative clue in mind, the team instructs Stuart to take the key and the white glove before exiting the room. Carry on. Where am I? You're in a large room, Stuart. There's a kind of scorpion. The one touch of that sting will finish, Stuart team. You best get him to run for it, but your timing best be perfect. I'm really beginning to resent the scorpion chamber. Looks cool. Looks cool. Yeah. But this one, I think this probably more than any other iteration of this room in the first two seasons demonstrates just how badly they've designed it. I What I can't work out, though, is why one of the advisors is suggesting that he needs to crouch. Overthinking it, I think. In season three, you get the flagstones removed from the fireplace, which narrows the path, and they have that happen across the path of the, um, the tail. I think it might be quite interesting if somebody tried doing that during season three, um, try, crouching underneath rather than just doing the timing bit. Yeah, I don't think it would work. Well, I don't see why not. There doesn't seem to be enough clearance in the ground. All it would do is slow them down and make it more difficult. I'm not so sure. The scorpion tail is quite high up. I suppose there's a danger if you crouch down, you're more likely to collide with the, make, make contact with the scorpion's pincers, mind you, so that might be a so anyway there is a safe path to the very far right and the advisors seem to have worked this out it's almost laughable the distance between the end of the scorpion's tail and what Stuart is walking they really should have just hurried up because of that they make very short work of the obstacle yeah but they could have made it even shorter forward where am I you're in a room Stuart there's there's no floor <clears throat> and it's, there's a serpent head and there's a lever. So this is interesting. It's clearly Lilith's domain, but there's no Lilith. And instead, there's this lever in front of Stuart. You're going to stop. Put your right hand out. Can you feel the lever? Yes. Pull. Pull. Dragon's breath. I leave my domain for five minutes and I return to find a total stranger with a large bag. Are you a burglar? Explain yourself at once. Dragon's breath. Anybody's been doing the nightmare drinking game, which is up on our website now. As soon as you hear anybody shout dragon's breath, that's one of the moments you have to take a sip. So we get this um, rage from Lilith. So question to go along with uh, Merlin a couple of episodes ago. Does everybody in the dungeon just live in constant fear of burglars? Well, I would say there's good reason for that. Um, because dungeons back then were the, uh, the medieval equivalent of prisons. So anywhere a thief was going to be sent, it would be down into a dungeon. <laughs> that's true. But it's Stuart explains he's not a burglar, but a dungeoneer. And at this point, Lilith notices the lever. Why do we even have that lever? Blooper alert. Listen very, very carefully while Lilith is raging about words that have never even been written down. Listen very carefully. You'll hear a faint electronic double beeping noise on the soundtrack. I think it's an hourly alert telling the wearer that the clock has just hit the hour on an advisor's watch. I shall have words with you. Words that are so dreadful they have never even been written down, let alone spoken. Yes, madam. Stuart, have a word. Have a word with your team. We know you're listening. I'm not really sure why or how Lilith thinks that Trey Guard had a lever installed that can operate her magical causeway, though. It wasn't necessarily 
think that. She just says that she holds him responsible. And this is, you know, as he's as he's the dungeon master, he's sort of in charge of organising everything in the dungeon. There's, there's, there's kind of logic in that. Lilith calls Stuart a uh, meddlesome mannequin and insists that he makes amends for upsetting her so dreadfully. And at that point... Warning, team. Loath as I am to interrupt Lilith, I'm afraid time is about to interrupt us all. Another awkward little temporal shift is now occurring. Oh dear. Temporal disruption has now set in. Will our team make it through the serpent's mouth? Or will Lilith turn nasty again? To find out, join us again for Nightmare. For when time turns once more, you'll find an open dungeon door. So it's early days for Stuart and his team. So far, I think they're shape, shaping up okay. Yeah, it's an interesting episode. Um, what I'm noticing comparing to episodes a bit earlier in the season is the gameplay has started to slow down quite a bit, which has gone past mid-season. I think the main problem is just the recent teams haven't been as good as the ones who got to level three a few weeks back because um, you, know, you, you think of uh, teams three and four. They were absolutely flying through the levels at times. Here, there's growing problems with indecision and clumsy manoeuvring from recent teams. Correcting for that is causing a lot of slower play. But it remains entertaining. There's some, there's still plenty of scary moments and amusing interplay, especially between advisors on Neil's team. The current team, I would say they come across as a bit less assertive um, than Neil's team and more nervy, but less prone to actual mistakes. They're shaping up okay. That's that episode's covered. If you enjoy the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at NightmarePod. If you want to support the podcast, we're NightmarePod on Patreon and Ko-fi. Our website is nightmarepod.co.uk and that's where you can find the aforementioned nightmare drinking game. Or you can email us at podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk. Don't forget we've also got our Merlin dancing competition going at the moment. Look at the link in the description for the footage we want you to use. We basically want you to add some music and make it look like Merlin's dancing. You can also edit it however you like, but you have to use that footage. We'll pick our favourite one on June the 1st, and if it's yours, we'll be sending you a t-shirt. Before we go, I'd like to thank all of our lovely patrons, but especially Keeper of the Book of Quests, David N. Rabbit, Advisor Peter Pulsford, and Dungeoneer David Thompson. Support us on Patreon at Dungeoneer level or above to get your name mentioned on the podcast. We'll see you next time when we have an extra special, super secret special special extra extra special guest but in the meantime don't have nightmares just watch them instead sure